Hello, welcome back to Oh God, What Now? with me, Andrew Harrison. Today, just as Rishi Sunak thinks he's got his house in order, friendly policy towards the EU for the sensibles, Rwanda for the headbangers, here comes Boris Johnson to remind everybody of the very worst of the Toryverse. Will the trial of the greased piglet overturn Sunak's plans? And might Johnson get away with everything, again? Plus, it's 20 years since the invasion of Iraq. Do we really understand how completely it changed our politics and the world? And space is the place. The government has just signed a nuclear power deal with Rolls-Royce for a base on the moon. It's the stuff of my quatermass-fueled dreams, but should we sort things out on Earth before we ruin a completely different planetary body? Before we start, a little date for your diary. Our next podcaster's question time for Patreon backers is on Thursday the 30th of March at 7pm on Zoom, and Ian Dunt will be answering your questions. Search Patreon, oh God, what now, to back us and sign up. Now let's meet the panel. You know he's an actor, a commentator and a cook, but not everybody knows that Alex Andreo also used to be a civil servant regulating corporate mergers. Hello, Alex. <laughs> My hidden past. Secret past, yeah. <laughs> so on that particular tip, as it were, what's going on with the Credit Suisse mess? Are we in a banking crisis yet? And do I need to get a wheelbarrow to go down the NetWest? Good luck finding a branch. So this is, this is part of the continuing sort of creeping crisis of Silicon Valley Bank going tits up. Mm-hmm to which Credit Suisse was particularly exposed, the latest of a series of bad risks to which they were exposed. You may remember they were also exposed to green seal capital mm-hmm. um, going bust. Um, so it's true that, that Credit Suisse appears to have been badly around for at least a decade, making a series of bad bets, none of which came through, basically. Ironic that it was one of the least affected banking giants in the 2008 crisis. Mm-hmm. The funny thing about this is that UBS has floated the idea of taking over Credit Suisse for years and the Swiss Competition Authority has blocked it, quite rightly, because they are the two largest banks in Switzerland, as in high street banks Mm. in Switzerland. But there was such concern that come Monday there was going to be carnage that off to UBS goes the Swiss government on Saturday, I think it was, going, remember how you've been trying to buy Credit Suisse for decades? Now would be a good time. So on Sunday afternoon, before markets opened anywhere, up they popped to announce a merger between UBS and Credit Suisse. Well, UBS is calling it a merger. Credit Suisse is calling it a takeover. And everyone else is calling it, rightly, a bailout. So while this necessary, this deal has massive quirks, all right? $17 billion worth of debt has been written down to zero, leaving bondholders with nothing, while stockholders made out really quite well from the sale. I say this because in most bankruptcy scenarios, debt holders come above stockholders in the pyramid of getting a bit of money back, okay? So this is a big break. It's not the best precedent to be setting. And one of the ways in which this may unravel going forward, and basically investors seeing debt bonds as a very unsafe um, investment. Will this stem the tide? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, everyone hoped HSBC buying um, the UK bit of SVB last Monday would stem the crisis. And instead, it just moved on to the next week bit. So what's the next week bit? European banking stocks took a bit of a battering. But the smarter analysts are looking at regional USA banks with some fear because they are much more exposed Um, Trump reversed many of the post-2008 Obama measures for small and mid-sized financial institutions. 
he basically said they don't have to apply unless you're X size and up. And so a lot of the regional mid-sized banks that lend and are involved, heavily involved in the states are very, very vulnerable. Um, UBS stock took a 7% hit this morning. It actually ended the day, well, last I checked, about 4 o'clock, it ended the day in positive territory. So that would indicate that markets took a better look at this deal and they saw a possible solid future position, but we'll know more in the next few days. Listeners, put your money into podcasts. That's where, uh, you know, that's, that's where a solid future is to be had. We're also joined by the author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet, Marie Leconte. Hello, Marie. Hello. I just wanted to very quickly say, I think, Alex, I'm not sure your story stands up. I think the whole thing about Credit Suisse is a bit weird. Like, it's a story that's full of holes. Oh, God. <laughs> what now? <laughs> Thank you. So I've been holding it in for the past five minutes. I really needed to say it. Can we? Like, we, we can talk about literally anything else you want yeah, it's now. Good. I'm it's good. good. Yeah. I, th- I think that can be Marie's icebreaker, actually. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Go home. Now. I think audiences know everything about her from that joke. Should I just uh, <laughs> sit in silence and think about what I've done for like the next ten minutes? So the Met is going to be excoriated this week in Louise Casey's report. Leaks to The Guardian say it's going to find that the Met is riddled with deep-seated racism, sexism and homophobia and has failed to tackle any of these issues. Is it make or break week for the Met? Well, I really hope so, um, but I didn't, I'm, I'm just not that optimistic because it, it kind of feels that this is a discussion we've now been having for some time. Not, no one, I think, so far has been really shocked by actually what was being briefed um, ahead of the release of the report. So it's not even a case of saying, oh, God, we had no idea. This has created so much momentum. We must act now. You know, th- this stuff we know about. So I do really hope that something happens. But again, is it completely make or break? Is it the end of the meta as we know it? Um, I'm not holding my breath, which is incredibly depressing as a woman living in London. But here we are. I think we're going to go into this in more detail on Wednesday when the report's actually out. So we'll see what, uh, what it actually says apart from the leaks. Completing the panel, it's the independent sketch writer Tom Peck. Hi, Tom. Hello. So what did you make of Suella Braverman's surprise visit to Rwanda? And the picture of her laughing, which prompted a lot of very horrible and very crass photoshops. Yeah, I mean, it's not the most lighthearted of icebreakers. I, I have to admit, I'm finding the whole Braverman in Rwanda thing extremely difficult to process. Like I would say over the last eight years of what seemed sort of constant misery. I don't think I've found anything quite so um, stomach turning as this particular spectacle, really. I mean, most of the terrible things that various governments have done since 2015, 2016, have also been sort of pathetically amusing or incompetent at the same time. And this is of there is obviously huge amounts of incompetence here, but there's nothing pathetically amusing about it. I mean, to get a couple of facts in first, right? The first one is the policy is designed to deport, deport first and then process second. So the government position that this will somehow help them assist genuine refugees and deport um, economic migrants is completely laughable. There's also absolutely no indication that Rwanda is going to accept more than 300 refugees a year or asylum seekers, refugees, however you want to describe them. As we know, 45,000 people have come in the year to date. So the whole thing is farcical. It exists only to wind people up or to pander to the prejudice of people who are in favour of this kind of thing. I mean, she simultaneously wants to claim that its main function is deterrent, while at the same time saying it's a great place. And if she's criticised, um, she always says the same thing. She says, well, have you actually been there? It's really nice. I mean, as it happens, I have been there and it, and it is nice. But it is a country that also has an appalling human rights record. At the last presidential election, Paul Kagame won 98% of the vote. 
And now Rwanda is described by our own government. You know, this is the UK. Our own government describes it as a democratic country. If you had to ask a government minister tomorrow whether a 98% vote in an election was a corrupt election, they would have to obfuscate. They wouldn't have to be able to answer. They would, they would be unable to answer that question. And that is the degree of shame that this complete farce has reduced our government and by turn our country too. It's, it's so bad. I, I really cannot get over how appalling it is to have it on the TV. Boris Johnson is due before the Commons Privileges Committee this week for a televised hearing into charges that he deliberately misled the House over breaking lockdown regulations. The former Prime Minister is submitting a 50-page dossier, which he claims rebuts the charges. His defence, led by Lord Panic KC, has cost at least £220,000 of public money. The stakes are pretty high. The inquiry could end in Johnson losing his seat if he's suspended from the Commons for long enough, and the Tory press are desperate to rubbish it. Tom, Conservative MPs have been urging Johnson to tell the truth and be straight and serious in the hearing. Um, Will you be holding your breath for this? It will be glorious. Um, four full hours it's been muted, 2 2 p.m. till 6 p.m. And in the middle of it, some of them will have to disappear to vote through Sonax, Sunak's uh, Windsor framework. So it has the outward um, architecture of farce entirely present already. How are you going to turn? Did you tell a load of lies? No, into four hours. Bruce Springsteen can't turn. No, it's four hours. <laughs> um, well, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? I mean, I'm sure he will be his usual egregious self, but it, I think I will probably find it quite therapeutic, really, in the sense that it kind of doesn't matter. Like, he's not the prime minister anymore. He's only an embarrassment to himself rather than to all of us now. He's already out on his ass. I mean, all right, he may yet try and come back, but let's not worry about that for now. I mean, his defence is laughable. Um, and the, the sort of the, the, the pre-defence that we've seen over the last couple of days is equally laughable. He's simultaneously trying to claim that the process is biased, that it's rigged, but also that it's going to vindicate him. Well, you can't have bo- both, mate. And then he's arguing that the burden of proof is too low um, and that it should be beyond reasonable doubt, which is um, the burden of proof in a criminal case rather than balance of probabilities. Now, he's been done for breaking the law and it's quite... It's, all this really is is an HR hearing, right? And if you're saying that um, that... You would prefer it if you were treated as a criminal rather than maybe um, someone who's just sort of done something wrong in the office. Then you're possibly revealing more about yourself than you wish. But also for many, many, many reasons, human resources in any company or in any public body, they don't work like the criminal court. And we shouldn't really want uh, to yield to Boris Johnson's requests on that. I think my favourite bit of the defence is his entire defence is they asked he acted in good faith and was uh, and was told that he was acting within the law. Citing a WhatsApp message <laughs> from his director of communications, which said that uh, he had been assured no rules or guidance had been broken, and it just made me think. You know, if I said this to my mum, she'd say, "If your director of communications told you to run across the road with your eyes shut, would you run across <laughs> the road with your eyes shut? Use your own judgment, wouldn't she?" Yeah, I mean, it's complete garbage, isn't it? You're dealing with the person who was the actual prime minister. And here he is. And what he's apparently going to say is, I didn't do anything wrong because look at this WhatsApp message I got from Jack Doyle, who used to write leaders from the mail. I mean, bore me later. I mean, his defence, <laughs> don't forget, if taken in chronological order were, there were no parties. I didn't know about the parties. I didn't know about the parties, even though I was at them. And he now seems to think that uh, a WhatsApp message is going to sort of supersede, is going to trump his own documented behaviours over many months. I cannot see that that will be successful. 
I just really respect it because I've come to see it as um, what I like to call the Darren Grimes defense, which is, Your Honor, I'm very stupid. <laughs> now, that's essentially it, right? His thing is that, well, someone sent me a message and I read it and I thought, yes. Mm. Like, that's it. Like, literally, like, that, that's the end of that. It's just, yeah, Your Honor, I'm very stupid. Delightful. I mean, but what reason could you possibly have? for doubting the accuracy and the facts of the person that you have explicitly hired to spin the facts in your favor. <laughs> like this is a political appointee explicitly hired to twist facts yeah, so it's like, guys, to look right. favorable. Yeah. I've got this little devil on my shoulder and I think he's a trustworthy guy. <laughs> and no one on the other shoulder. That's not my fault. The background, of course, is the huge kind of attempts to to, um, to to manage the news and to create the impression that there's a Gransfield support behind Johnson and to rubbish the inquiry. It's, it, the, the, the continuity Boris Johnson faction are continuing on all fronts. I mean, Marie, what's your sense of the way opinion in the column, in the Commons is going? Because it will come down to a vote, won't it, whether he's suspended or not? It will, and it will be a free vote. And I, I have no idea, actually, which way is going to fall. I, I think what, one thing... I find really interesting is there's actually quite a large contingent now of Conservative MPs who we know for a fact are standing down at the next election. So I think it's about 25 or 26. Mm. They're, they're, you know, it is very likely others will announce that they're going to stand down quite soon. So there's quite, actually quite a large group of people who just presumably do not care anymore. The walking dead about, of the Conservative no, no, Party. Exactly. And, you know, and then, they are the walking dead. And mm. it's a bit, you know, if you're a Tory whip, what can you possibly say? You know, even, you know, beyond the specific things, obviously this one's a free vote. What can you possibly say to someone who's basically working their notice period? Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so I'm not entirely sure. I, I wouldn't be surprised, basically, if we saw some surprises there. Like, I, I don't think it's going to be again. Yeah, no, no, that was really... That's the awesome. most Marie thing you've ever said. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some surprises. So, you know, it's one of those where I started the sentence and I could see where it was going. And if it's too late now, I'm just going to have to keep going. Um, it, sometimes clunk is what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Fine, I stand by it. But no, so I don't think it's going to be one of those unbelievably clear-cut things of every Labour MP votes to burn Boris Johnson at the stake and every Conservative MP is like, actually, we should give him candy and a hug. Um, can, can I, I think it may be spicier than that. Can they do the stake thing? <laughs> some old law somewhere, like the one where you can take sheep across London Bridge. There must be, surely. We have about 24 hours to find out. <laughs> OK, well, listeners, see what you can find. A survey in The Independent, 67% of voters told Savanta that Johnson shouldn't wait to be punished. He should quit his seat if he is found to have lied. This requires an outbreak of conscience on behalf of Boris Johnson. I, I, honestly, I don't even know what you want me to say to that. And I just, what what would you like happen. me to say? What would you like me to possibly add at this stage? Fair point. Alex Johnson's team is saying the inquiry is biased. This is a bit rich from the people who are all about parliamentary sovereignty. Let's put the courts <laughs> above parliaments. It's a bit rich from people who call judges enemy of the enemies of the people, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if he wants that, I'm all for it. I have to mm. say, if Johnson wants to put his hand, his, his career in the hands of judges, considering how he's treated them for the last three years, I say go for it. And especially with the, with the rules of the disclosure, that courts have, I mean, he will just have every single WhatsApp message and personal email read into the record. Of course, he doesn't want that, right? Oh. He's just doing what Johnson always does, which is every time he's in trouble, he kicks a little bit of sand, he blusters a lot and hopes to get away with it. He's a political puffer fish. Oh. Basically, if threatened, he just, poof, he just inflates to this spiky ball but it's all made of air. 
And there's a bit more of an insidious thing happening with um, Lord Crudis's Conservative Democratic <laughs> Organisation, which has been emailing or contacting the four Tory MPs on the committee to express the deep concern and disappointment of your participation in the Labour-led investigation. It's just straight-up intimidation, isn't it? Yeah, and I think also particularly a case of contempt of Parliament. Mm. But we shall see, um, because it's entirely possible that once the committee is done with Johnson, they will move on to the behaviour of the people around Johnson in trying to intimidate the committee in trying to suggest bias and all of that, because all of that is prescribed under the rules. So, I mean, I, why all this vanguard action? That, that's the thing that you have to ask. Mm. Why antagonize the committee before they've made a finding? Why antagonize MPs before they've taken the vote? The only rational explanation is that it's his assessment and his legal team's assessment that this thing is going to go against him or that there's a, a good chance it will go against him. So he's trying to get his attacks in beforehand. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it, I mean, if you if if you get the sense that you have even an even chance, you say all this stuff after the committee has made a recommendation, but before the vote. You don't say it before you even appear in front of the committee. The only reason to do that is that you think you're about to get hammered, right? Marie, Boris Johnson's superpower is, is to just suck up all the attention at all times. Sunak has been trying to strap together something of a coherent platform over the past couple of weeks, fix Northern Ireland, you know, and then and also make stop the boats a thing. You know, it is it's ramshackle, but it's a it's a it is a platform of sorts. And then it's Boris Johnson again, just knocking it all over. What does this kind of circus mean for Sunak? Well, I, you know, I, I doubt he's thrilled. Um, and I think the problem as well, because I think that you know, a, a nearly similar thing happened. Uh, with Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn, because Jeremy Corbyn kind of refused to go away once Keir Starmer got elected. But actually, that worked really well, I think, for Starmer, because he came down really hard on his predecessor and made himself look, you know, good in front of the members who hated Corbyn, but also to the country saying, this is a new era. Actually, thank you, Corbyn, for picking a fight that I, you know, that I can win as the new leader. I think everything we know about Sunak is that he is actually quite conflict avoidant. So it is very unlikely he will do anything similar. In which case, you know, it's just not great because, yeah, A, it, it is sucking oxygen out of the room entirely. Um, and B, you know, the electorate really does not like Boris Johnson. Actually, the electorate does not. So, OK, so the electorate does not currently hate Rishi Sunak as much as it hates the Conservative Party. If Rishi works well, I'm guessing that's the hope in number 10, that Rishi can bring the Tory party up and above with him. Mm-hmm. When instead, I think the more the public hears about Boris Johnson, who, again, they hate, uh, if you look at any poll on the topic, it will probably bring the party down. So, so again, you know, there's absolutely nothing good there unless Rishi is willing to say actually enough and really, you know, do something, remove the whip, just do something. But again, I mean, I may be wrong, but I don't see him doing that. He's had to postpone announcements on energy, pensions and crime because mm. of this, which I should imagine if you're Rishi Sunak looking at the absolute shit show that the Conservative Party is right now and you've got some ideas and then you can't articulate them because Matey's back. You'd be quite angry, wouldn't you? You would, wouldn't you? But but then, I, I don't know, it, it feels like quite a Greek mythology type thing, right, of Rishi only really became who he is and ended up where he was because of Boris Johnson and now he just cannot get rid of him. Like, it is a proper sort of like making a deal with the devil kind of thing. Tom, as you mentioned, um, this marathon on Wednesday is going to coincide with the Windsor Framework vote over Northern Ireland. The DUP say they're voting against it, so many Tory MPs may also join them. Does this give a point of focus 
to those people in the Conservative Party who would quite like to destroy Rishi Sunak? Well, in the sense that the pro-Johnson wing of the Tory party are also far more likely to be those that would side with the DUP and be very much in favour of the hardest Brexit you could possibly get. To, to have these two things happening at once may give them more resolve to act in a more extreme fashion than they would otherwise have done. But generally speaking, it is only, only really a bit of um, parliamentary timetabling coincidence. I don't think it will have grave ra- actual concrete ramifications with regard to either of them, the fact that they're happening at the, at the same time, other than potentially the Johnson hearing will probably be quite embarrassing for, well, not embarrassing for Richie Sunak, but it's embarrassing for the Conservative Party. It certainly will be slightly embarrassing for Richie Sunak that the DUP aren't going to back his deal. And if you have two of these things at once, then you possibly undo some of the momentum, which he's definitely built up in the last few weeks, turning things around in his favour. So I definitely think he would rather they weren't happening at the same time, yeah. Tom, just in closing, what's worse for Rishi Sunak? Johnson gets suspended and loses his seat and goes off to be a nightmare wandering in the in the wilderness, or he gets away with it. Um, well, what's best for Sunak is that Boris Johnson goes away and shuts up as quickly as possible. But unfortunately for him, that is something that Boris Johnson does not want to do, so it isn't going to happen. I mean, which of these two outcomes would be better for Sunak? In the in the Boris Johnson being kicked out of the Commons, if if, if you like, and there being a a, a by election will be appalling short-term news, but it's still far away enough to the to an election that he might get over it. So you have to, in a way, think the first. It would be a bit harder for Johnson to be a complete menace while lacking a parliamentary seat. And it would be also be quite brave of any kind of local Tory association to give him another one so that he might come back. Um, but then at the same time, if he, if he was vindicated by this um, by the Privilege Committee, if you like, if they decided not to go as, that far down the line, then he will be able to use it as having as it being a sort of a proclamation, a loud proclamation of proof that he did nothing wrong, even though it won't actually mean that, but that won't matter to him. But of course, the mechanism through which Johnson is kicked out of the Conservative Party, which may be beneficial for Rishi Sunak, will also be a de facto defeat for the government. So he looks bad, whatever happens. But you do wonder, yeah, if quietly um, in the evenings, Rishi Sunak is wondering maybe you quite like him to see him got rid of and then it will have all bypassed a bit in a year or so's time. It's 20 years this week since the United States invaded Iraq, aided and supported by Britain in what proved to be the most disastrous Western foreign policy decision since Vietnam. The stated aim was to depose Saddam Hussein and install a Western-style market democracy in Iraq. The result was a war that lasted eight years, cost some $3 trillion, and by some estimates killed over 200,000 people, with nothing to show at the end of it. Instead, almost all of our current nightmares, anti-democratic populism, American isolationism, Donald Trump, the rise of Iran and China, the Ukraine war, even the refugee crisis that triggered Brexit, all have their roots in the Iraq war. A special edition of our companion podcast, The Bunker, is out today with Arthur Snell taking Alex into the military and the geopolitical meaning of the war. Arthur knows it a lot better than we do. But we wanted to talk about the domestic political side of it. What did the Iraq war do to British politics and how long will its effects last? So I wanted to ask everybody first off, you know, what are your memories of the build up in the war? Because I'm of a certain age. Maria's grimacing. You must have been at school. 
I was 11. 11. Sorry. What did it look like from the perspective of an 11-year-old? Well, in France as well. So I think there's a, there's a double thing here. Yeah. Um, I was actually talking about this. I had a French friend staying with me over the weekend and we talked about it. And literally the only thing both of us remembers is freedom fries. Like yes. We just remember. Like, I think it's one of my earliest memory of Americans being weird. Mm. Um, and then, but I, I, I wish I could say more, but hand on heart, I do not remember anything else because I was 11 years old. Alex, how about you? I remember it being a sort of small part of the aftershock of September 11th, really. Mm. I was still in that state of shock and panic and feeling so unsafe that it felt like it was part of the crumbling of stuff around us that Mm. had begun with those two planes going into um, that building. Um, And I had my, you know, I had my doubts uh, about any kind of intervention because I think our record in intervening is a really poor one. Um, I went on that march. Uh, I didn't think it was the right thing to do, not because of specific reasons to do with this particular intervention. You know, I was, Mm. generally speaking, quite anti-war as a young lefty person. And so I don't, I don't really remember it in in that much detail. Like the start of it, it it was sort of consumed by events of that period. Mm. Tom, how about you? Because you're a fair bit younger than us as well. Yeah, I mean, I was twenty one, and mm. I was coming to the end of my undergraduate degree in politics, and I remember extremely clearly that we were doing a module on political revolutions, and we were reading Edmund Burke, and then like some more slightly more obscure people like Theda Scotchpole, and learning in these lectures how the key points from all revolutions, be they Cuban, Mexican, Russian, French, whatever, is that whatever political circumstances there are that lead to some kind of dictatorial power being overthrown, once you overthrow them, those circumstances don't go away. They'll always overhang into whatever overhang into whatever new thing you're trying to build. You don't get carte blanche to start again. I mean, Edmund Burke very clearly writes that in, the, in his Reflections on the Revolution in France in 1789. We were learning all that in a sort of um, theoretical way. And then in the evenings, watching the news, and I just remember thinking... Um, like they must have read some of this shit in the Pentagon, right? Like they they must know. They won't they won't have like not done any planning for what to do after this, will they? Because I'm a 21-year-old undergraduate and the problems here are being made very, very obvious to me. And I'm sure they'd have thought about them. And of course, they hadn't, had they? My thought at the time was, I don't know, it's it's not popular, but I remember I remember being that person who thought actually yeah this is justified here's the research here's the intelligence um here are the uh, iraqi trade unionists saying you know please come and save us from this guy and i was kind of part of that you know all polling majority at the time was in favor of the war and then you look back at it and you go you know sometimes the solution is worse than the problem and i remember reading doing an awful lot of reading around the literature of the occupation like uh imperial life in the emerald city and all these these Books which describe exactly what the occupation uh, was like and how not just poorly planned, but not planned at all it was. Republican apparatchiks in their early 20s being handed ministries and large budgets and told to go and install a free market Mm. in a place that's barely got a rule of law and, you know, go and install a legal system in a place that, uh, you know, is, well, let's just say isn't particularly welcoming to it. And you just look back on it with a sort of a sense of, 
I don't know, massive kind of embarrassment that you could have been so naive about it. And yet the same basic idea, you know, do you do you want Saddam Hussein to still be running that place? Not particularly, but you can't get to be, you can't get to where you want to be as quickly and easily and simply as simply invading and knocking him over. All big historical events get boiled down to, you know, cliche and sound bites. And the last, the, the lasting theme with Iraq is Tony Blair and Alastair Campbell lied about weapons of mass destruction, so the war was illegal. Is what people have tended to take away, and what's been passed down to younger generations as well, that it was that simple. But it wasn't, was it? I mean, we, we, Blair was kind of in position of trying to maintain a connection between Britain and America, thought that Britain could be the bridge between Europe and America. Yes, I mean, that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is that by wading into the war after Bush, he lent he he lent it some legitimacy. Mm. Um, so you could look at it either way. I mean, I look, ultimately, this notion, which uh, in America it's Bush-lied people died yeah. over here, it's Blair-lied people died, it's, of course, a gross simplification of the issue and actually not true even mm. you know if you look at the number of inquiries that have happened um th- because the truth is much more horrible and much more difficult to get a handle on right because it's it's so much easier to pretend that it was it was a couple of people over there and a couple of people over here that decided to mislead the na- their nations into an illegal war rather than face the possibility that you know an intelligence machine that we considered elite actually fucked up horribly yeah. that the system of checks and balances that should have kicked into place was trumped by this idiotic, ludicrous convention that when it comes to anything to do with war, apparently all opposition parties must must jump on board and support the government because otherwise they're being unpatriotic. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't rely on the opposition parties to scrutinize, to ask the difficult questions, when it comes to a war, like when do they? Mm-hmm. You know, only when it comes to... Um, the finer points of pension policy. Yeah. You know, that, that's when you need people to have a proper ding dong in Parliament and thrash out those issues. And none of that happened. And none of that happens still. I don't. And so this notion that it was a couple of people who decided to mislead us, and but for them, this thing wouldn't have happened, is hogwash. Mm. This thing was hardwired hardwired into the machinery of government, it relied on bad information, it relied on a sort of hubris by the West that believed not only that we had won every argument, not only that democracy was best, but our specific brand of democracy was best and exportable and people would be very happy even if we imposed it on them. So we go over to Iraq and what's the first thing they do after their construction? They bust up all the unions. Now explain to me how that is part of a peacekeeping mission. Yeah. But, you know, the the whole thing, it's so easy to reduce it down to this silly notion that that a couple of people made the wrong decisions or a couple of people were wicked mm. and deliberately misled us. But it wasn't, you know, it was a world in shock. 
it was a public with bloodlust, and that isn't something we must forget, that yeah. these leaders were, were a conduit for a very strong public feeling which demanded retribution. Yeah, the bit that's right? never really talked about is the fact that the poll uh, support, the polling support for action was high. That's right. It was a clear majority right. in, in, in most Western countries. That's right. You yeah. can't find anyone that will say they supported it at the time now. Mm. But obviously a lot of people did. Well, I'm going to admit, I did support it at the time, mm. and I look back on it now and I go, what were you thinking? But I was acting on the, like Tony Blair, I was acting on the information before me. And the emotion, because that's yeah. what the Chilcot inquiry found, mm. that Blair acted on emotion, as did Bush. That march, the huge march, one of the biggest in the country's history, it featured many, many members of Labour's future shadow cabinet. Do you think we would have had Ed Miliband and then Corbynism without the Iraq war? I don't know that we would have had any of what we have now <laughs> without the Iraq war. You know, it was such a such a break with everything that was going. I mean, it, it is exactly in those kinds of situations that that government must, by definition, say, we know much more than we can tell you. So mm. you're just going to have to trust us. And if you bust that and follow it with MP expenses, it just becomes an in inexorable road towards Trump over there, Johnson over here, Brexit, or, you know, all of that stuff. Tom, do you think that simplifying the war and casting Blair as its villain essentially boxed Labour into one kind of politics, into a kind of stop the war, not in my name, anti-American kind of politics for the ensuing decade? Well, je the Iraq war, if you like, was not dissimilar from what America spent most of the Cold War trying to do, i.e. exporting its values around the world on the premise that its values were superior. Now, I happen to believe, potentially controversially, that our values are superior uh, and that we shouldn't be afraid to export them around the world because democracy, uh, freedom of speech are things, generally speaking, that people want. And the people who, I mean, I've watched countless uh, documentaries about the Iraq war in which they interview young Iraqis who couldn't have been more excited, like greeting the tanks as they came down the street. But the, the Iraq war lost, obviously cost America and Britain, our confidence to do those sorts of things, and which is why we didn't go into Syria, which is why Libya is a mess. But what is, in a way, disappointing, if you like, is that it cost us our confidence in our own values, but we didn't even try to bring them to Iraq. We just toppled Saddam and legged it. So we lost our confidence without even trying to, to, to assert it, if you like. And certainly um, Labour got itself into a terrible mess. I mean, I remember when, when, Ed, Mal when, when Ed Miliband won the uh, leadership contest in 2010, people said that this was a good thing because um, he hadn't voted for Iraq, whereas um, David Miliband had. And therefore, when the Chilcot report eventually came out, David Miliband would be in the firing line, whereas Ed wouldn't be. Well, those sorts of things really, I always think a very simplistic reading of politics because you, you're only looking at a binary choice. I think David Miliband would have been a far superior leader for Labour than Ed, and he could have ridden out that problem with, with there being much less downside than having Ed as a sort of sledgehammer to crack your nut, if you like. Like all of the, that you want to be in government, you want to win elections, and the idea that the only way you can do that is by having a, a frankly, a poor choice of leader, but one who is less tainted by Iraq. Is a, is, a, is a bad decision that Labour made. And, and of course, after Ed Miliband comes Jeremy Corbyn, who considers himself to be vindicated for opposing the Iraq war. And he, to a certain extent, was. But I do think one of the things that's a bit disappointing about all the analysis that's being read today, that's everywhere today, 
is based on this premise that there's somehow a choice between um, that if there had been no invasion, no invasion of Iraq in 2003, then Iraq would have been permanently frozen in the state that it was in in the months before the invasion. And that is obviously not the case. And when Tony Blair says things like, well, what would have happened if the Arab Spring had come to Iraq in the way that it came to Syria on Saddam Hussein's watch? It's all counterfactual. But I do think there's a certain, we, we are predisposed to debating it in quite a simplistic way. Marie, when you moved to the UK, did you, did you find like the question of Iraq was kind of hanging over our politics or sort of shaping our politics? Uh, it definitely was. In a way, I sort of didn't realise immediately. But then I guess my proper introduction to British politics was uh, the 2010 student protest, which I ended up kind of randomly being a part of. Um, and what I found really interesting was that, you know, coming from France, I was like, hey, I was like, OK, oh, cool. We're doing the protest thing we do every year. Um, when everyone else was like, oh, no, no, to be clear, like this has not happened in a very long time. We don't usually do this. But the second thing as well was that, you know, I kind of had this natural optimism baked in where so we had some massive protests in, I think, in France, student protests in 2005 over a law I won't bore you with, but we won. So I kind of came in as that, OK, cool. So you're saying we're having nearly one in a generation protests across the country. So obviously we're going to win this. And all the other kids were basically like, no, to be clear, we'll, we will almost certainly lose. Uh, but we just kind of feel like we have to do it, which I found really interesting. And then only realised, I think, sometime later that that was because either the kind of, you know, kind of, I guess, PhD students had probably had their first march be the Iraq march. So they were like, actually, I've been there before and I know that doesn't work. And the people who are my age, probably at least some of them, like enough of them had parents who'd been on the march. Maybe they'd been on the march as, you know, with their parents. And so as a result, we're like, yeah, protesting just does not work. Um, so yes, so I, so I do think that it, it is still being felt mm. as well on that kind of side of things. Alex, um, the Iraq, Iraq war ended kind of any appetite for Western intervention for two decades. Do you think Ukraine is maybe resurrecting it? I guess so. I mean, I hadn't thought of it like that, but uh, I guess it depends also on the personalities of the people who are around mm. at the time, who lead the various parties at the time. Um, because... I think what tends to shape this is there is this wide, widely held belief that it's only wartime leaders that can really achieve a legacy of greatness. And you don't achieve that by not doing anything, right? You don't achieve it by not participating. You achieve it by doing something. So the, the emphasis for a, a prime minister who wants to shape the future legacy is always to take action during a wartime situation. And I think that really skews our decisions very heavily. Uh, and Iraq has been a corrective in part, and, and I guess it's still the reason why we're not discussing maybe going into Ukraine more fully, you know, providing actual troops. And oh. so we're doing it in a way, in a strange proxy way, by just providing the equipment as if that makes a difference. I mean, I, it, it definitely colors everything that goes on. But at its root is, is this notion that we can somehow go in and make things better Mm. And it's just not borne out by historical fact. It's just not. I, I can think of a handful of examples where we have genuinely gone in and made things long-term better and hundreds of ones where we've gone in and made things immeasurably worse. And if that happens, you just have to question 
the machinery of of how you do the thing, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, and the, and the fact that there's a million things you can do that don't necessarily involve an invasion. You can create. We could have created a no-fly zone over Syria, which would have changed things a lot. Would have prevented Putin from going in. Or you can go even further back and say, if we had taken all the money that we're pumping into the military-industrial complex and put it in schools and women's charities and universities and funded you know, progressive democratic parties in that region of the world, maybe we'd have a very different outcome now. But but we tend to step in always late and always blundering around. That seems to me, with very few exceptions, to be the historical example. Yeah. Tom, it's a bit ironic, isn't it, that this move of Britain supporting America that was supposed to make us the bridge between Europe and America ends up with us out of the EU and irrelevant to America, influential on neither. I mean, Britain was always America's man in Europe, which is, I think, John Major's phrase. Um, I'm not convinced that the Iraq war led directly to Brexit. I mean, there are too many junctions on that journey to be sure that that you get from one to the other. But what I think is interesting is I, I think I'm right in saying that the only country that has fought shoulder to shoulder with the US in every war since the Second World War is not the UK, it's Australia. Um, And the biggest example of difference is Harold Wilson deciding that the Vietnam War looked like a shit idea and he would have no part of it. And he was proven to be absolutely right. But it wasn't very long after that, that Thatcher and Reagan were best buddies again. And don't forget that before before the Iraq decision, Blair had Thatcher into Downing Street and she advised him not to jeopardize the special relationship. Well, I think maybe he should have had a bit more faith in its endurance and should have had a bit more faith that you don't have to do exactly what your best mate tells you to in order to carry on being their best mate, really. Uh, I think in this country, we are, we are very um, conditioned to view the Iraq war through the prism of Tony Blair. And of course we were, of course we are, but I don't think Tony Blair was ever looking at a decision. I would, it, should, am I in favor or not in favor of the invasion of Iraq? It was, there is going to be an invasion of Iraq would it be better if America did it by itself or would it be better if I tried to get the international community to do it with them? And of course he tried to do that and then he failed. And that's why Robin Cook resigned, but decided that it was too late to back down. Finally, the last we heard of the UK space programme, Grant Shapps was editing Boris Johnson as a promotional pictures for Virgin Galactic. Now Rolls-Royce have won a contract from the UK Space Agency to build a nuclear reactor on the moon. Their chief executive is hoping that their research could lead to a continuous human presence on the moon. Do we need a moon base, though? And will we get the cool Space 1999 uniforms to go with it? Uh, Marie, would you like to be the first lobby correspondent on the moon? Not really. I think I want a planet. I don't want just a moon yeah, uh, fine. Uh, you know, I would be happy being oh, the first lobby correspondent what, somewhere else, but just a different. Yeah. What, as Battlestar Galactica shows us, the minute you put people in space, even a few dozen of them, politics happens. It does, and I suppose gossip happens as well. But again, no, I think no, you're dreaming too small. I want a planet. Well, yeah, I mean, planetoid. Um, you get a gas giant and be happy with it. Yes. <laughs> Your face is a gas you giant. You need what you're given. <laughs> there's already a case study of how sharing space could work, the, Inter- the International Space Station, which doesn't really get as much credit as an example of global cooperation as it could. Do you think, uh, you know, that bit in Armageddon turned everybody off the idea, being stuck in space? <laughs> it, but it's a weird one, actually, isn't it? Because I think you, you're entirely right. I think it, it is an area of kind of life and politics where... You know, countries manage to play nice with one another. But I wonder if actually there's not, 
you know, that, that, that's not the thing of like, we don't talk about it. Ergo, they kind of manage to quietly do their own thing in space and it all works. And actually, if we talked about it more, it probably would get politicized more because mm. people are awful. And I'm sure that, you know, I'm, I'm sure we could end up having cultural wars about the ISS somehow. When people start moaning about space and the waste of money and so forth, it is worth pointing out that Britain has a space industry that's worth £16 billion. And stuff on the moon that we can use includes rare earth metals like scandium and yttrium, building materials, water, oxygen, the lunar regolith, which is basically the soil, except it's not soil you can use to build stuff. And the moon is stuffed with helium-3, which is rare on Earth and is very good for fusion reactors. So actually, there should be a moon... Gold rush, shouldn't there be, Alex? We should we should all be wanting to get a bit of the moon. Well, I think if you could get on a cart with a horse and get there, there probably would be. <laughs> but but yeah. it is rather expensive and difficult to get yourself there and start panning for rare earth, earth yeah. metals. But there, but you have to start somewhere, don't you? And, and Look, I'm to... all for it. I you yeah. know I grew up on space nineteen ninety nine. Mm. Totally, totally with the program. Yeah, I mean the the idea that the moon is a kind of way station and a kind of jump off point where you know you can kind of build your uh, launch facilities and you get your fuel there, and because the gravity is so much smaller, you can actually get out yeah. at less, ex- less less fuel expense. Very very attractive. On the downside, you have to kind of live underground and wear those kind of zip up seventies outfits. Tom, moon bases have a terrible record. Uh, they get blasted into infinity when the Earth explodes. They get invaded by Cybermen and Ice Warriors. They're covered in monoliths from past civilizations, And also, <laughs> apparently, it's quite boring to live there. Would you fancy it? I do not share your depth of knowledge of the past record of moon bases. I imagine <laughs> I may need to have a rather different cultural hinterland than I do to, mm. to know. I, as far as I'm aware, there isn't currently one. So I'm not sure how terrible they've been up until now. Um, I'm not convinced. I mean, if I'm being asked, would I like to go and be basically a coal miner on the moon? I think I'll probably stick with just chewing the fat with you guys instead to earn a living. I'm thinking more along the lines of kind of political sketch writer on the moon would be more your (laughs) kind of thing. I mean, I have often thought about like, um, you know, when they have those, they announce those like one man sort of one way missions to Mars. You know, you can go, but you won't be able to get back but you will be the first and everybody will know your name and to boldly go where no man has gone before. Mm. And to be, and I sort of do think that, well, you know, I think I've quite an intrepid sort and everyone dies anyway. So maybe it's not a terrible idea, but then I sort of think that you'd get there and you'd get out the spacecraft. And after about half an hour, I think you'd be, Oh God, this was a shit idea. (laughs) (laughs) It looks a bit samey, right? The thing is, though, I don't, uh, very <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily true because people say the, the psychological burden of being on your own in this small space, only able to communicate through to, with people through screens with a terrible delay. Well, we're all used to that now. We had like 18 months of it. Absolutely really easy. It really yeah. sucked, though. It really you know, sucked. You know what? I, I, I didn't so actually look, mind it that much. I so look forward to Marie's Twitter output for, from the moon base. I feel like even... <laughs> like, no, no, say you, me, weather's not too good today. My tweets would be so mad. They would be so insane. And they're quite mad as it is. <laughs> There's a, a big uh, question facing us, which is that space has kind of effectively been privatised. You've got companies like SpaceX and Virgin, Elon Musk, all this kind of thing, making the running on the research because nation states can't afford it anymore. India on 
China, on the other hand, uh, are having a go. But generally speaking, the national enterprise has mm. gone mm. and it's tending to the, the private enterprise. Surely we have a duty to encourage our governments to do this. Otherwise, we're going to end up with the moon owned by Amazon. <laughs> with adverts on it. Yeah, but again, this is down to our economic model, right? Because mm. unless we change that, then the moon will end up being owned by Amazon anyway. It's just we will have paid for it all and then sold it to Amazon for a quid mm. um, the first time it sort of ran into trouble with public funding. Do you think the moon is going to end up a PFI disaster? No, I just... <laughs> a private public party. No, yeah. I just... I just think, generally speaking, it's our values that suck, basically. Mm. And the, the first thing we're, we're going to pack into any suitcase, anywhere we, we go. So we could go to Kepler-442b, I think, is the one they think is habitable. Mm -hmm. And our worldview would still be absolutely toxic. It's that we need to change. The yeah. rest is just astronomy. That's, that is the, the, the recurring theme of most exploratory science fiction, which is wherever you go, it's still you. Yeah. You're still taking yeah. all of the contents of your head with you. So just finally, I, I think that there is a valid reason why the people on this podcast should be made to go to the moon, which is if you only <laughs> send, if you only send miners, technicians, engineers and computer programmers you only take a tiny slice of human culture. You actually do need people who can write, who can make music, who can act, who can cook. Not that there's much to cook on the moon. Otherwise, you're not really taking the human the human race into space. Moon a lot of cheese-based dishes. Sorry, no, that's just reminded me of like, this is going to sound entirely unrelated, but it, it will get there. Um, a few, I, I rarely get genuinely drunk, um, but a few months ago I did get actually quite smashed and I realised I was drunk because I was like in absolute all seriousness talking to a friend and I was like, I think I need to go to Ukraine. I can't drive or like be in the army, but I feel like I could help with the vibes. I could be Ukraine's Bez. <laughs> the next day I was like, what was I on about? Jesus Christ. But yeah, so fine. So I could be the moon's Bez. Moon Bez, that'll do. We're at the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes, not necessarily to the moon. What are the things that have been distracting our panel from politics this week? Alex? I've been re-watching <laughs> re 24, because um, ah. my other half had never seen it, and I remembered it being quite good. It really isn't. <laughs> it's quite flabby. <laughs> it's, it's so, I, I've sort of watched, it, watched a season of it in wonderment at how flabby it is. You remember it being this really action-y thing that stuff happens. And it's like there are long periods where nothing happens except Jack Bauer's daughter just aimlessly getting herself into trouble with... It, it, every inappropriate man that she meets as a sort of filler to this packed 24-hour period. And it's also just, its politics are fucking awful. It's like, yeah, who cares? Just hurt everyone until they tell you where the bomb is. Very torture positive, and isn't it? It's, it's extraordinary <laughs> how something in, the, in a period of 20 years could have become a horrible 
cultural artifact. If only there was a particular atmosphere 20 years ago that made it acceptable well, to talk no, about No, but, but it's very relevant to what yeah. we're talking about because it's literally operating in that emotional space of the post-9-11 panic of mm. feeling unsafe and going, I've got to do anything. I'm going to do anything. Mm. Marie, how about you? What have you been distracting yourself with? Oh, this is going to be really on brand again. Um, but I finally read um, American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Ah. Uh, and it's so good. Turns out, yet again, absolutely everyone was right. Um, but yeah, it's what, <laughs> so I read the long version as well, which is like 650 pages. Read it in a week. Mm. Like genuinely just got, you know, and I'm not normally someone, again, I do have like a crippling attention deficit disorder. I can't really read at home. Um, whereas this, like yesterday, I just sat on my couch and read a hundred, like the last hundred pages in one go. Um, so yeah, no, absolutely tremendous book. Um, if you don't know what it is, like the, the vague plots, I mean, much happens, but the vague setup is kind of this world where, you know, gods kind of exist and they kind of don't. Um, but the premise is that gods are not very good at being in the US because America kind of hates gods. But also you did have all these waves of immigrants for all around the world at different times, uh, time periods, and they all brought with them their beliefs and their faith uh, in various gods. So again, you've got all these gods kind of stranded in the US where everyone's kind of forgotten them and doesn't worship them anymore. Um, and then stuff happens and it's just tremendous fun. Gods as immigrants. Exactly. Detached from their original context. Yeah. yeah. Tom, how about you? Oh, I have been really enjoying Wild Isle. You know, the, the David Atten- new David Attenborough, uh-huh. the one about British nature set in the British Isles. I don't know if anybody else has been watching it, but I do think it is a truly genius idea to like root it in this country, and which obviously doesn't have the most spectacular flora and fauna compared to where Attenborough usually goes. But to make people like really value what it is that they have in their own country, like, that they may have to make sacrifices to protect um like like and it's not it's not as spectacular as as other series where he's gone off to some distant desert or jungle but but what you encounter there is only ever really encountered by specialist wildlife photographers who have to camp out for two years to see it and there is there is some of that in this show too but to like to like to like to like make it about stuff in your own country um that you may sort of have seen yourself in a way from time to time but but filmed in the incredible way that they film it. It's just been absolutely overwhelming. But having said that, I do not want to see two intertwining foot-long slug penises ever again. Coward. What about about half a foot long? Will that be okay? Have you seen it? I don't want to see it. Oh, my God. The half subway, are you suggesting, would be better? (laughs) Well, my escape route is I've been enjoying uh, the book Adventures in Modern Recording by the producer, Trevor Horn, the incredible record producer, Trevor Horn, who did ABC, Propaganda, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Pet Shop Boys, Seal. It's a brilliant memoir of uh, of pop music at a time when budgets were insane and technology was exploding. And the tales he tells of trying to put together Malcolm McLaren's album Duck Rock of all the uh, the different sort of folk dances and celebratory tunes around the world with Malcolm McLaren, who couldn't sing and had no sense of rhythm at all. Highly amusing. And the reason I mention it, I'm going to be playing a set of ZTT records at Spiritland in London on Wednesday the 19th of April with my good friend Ian Wade. ZTT was the label of gigantic pop records, uh, all produced by Trevor Horn and his mates. 
these are towering records like, you know, Two Tribes, Moments in Love by Art of Noise, um, uh, Propagandas, Dr. Mabuza, incredible records. And we're going to play them on the biggest speakers you've ever seen in your life that are probably worth more than your house. So I've been reading Trevor Horn's book to get the background <laughs> and it's happening on Wednesday the 19th of April and it's free to get in as well. That's at Spiritland. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday. Or if you like the podcast, we'll be back a little bit earlier if you back us on Patreon. Thank you, Tom. Absolute pleasure as always. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marie. Thank you. And thank you, Alex. Thank you. And thank you, Moonbez. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to everybody who joined us for Alex's podcaster's question time uh, last week. We've uh, The next panellist is Ian Dunn, so it's happening on the 30th of March. So sign up and we'll see you there. For now, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, along with those thank yous to our latest Patreon backers. Hello from me to Lachlan McKenzie, Daniel Watton, that's Watton, not Wooten, and Stacey Hart. Big shout out from me and many thanks to Alex Sloan, Ruben and Lisa G. Hello and thanks from me to Crew Girl, Steve Wooten and Shelley Lighthizer. And a hearty salute from me to Aoife Barra, Jay Buller and Sam Swain. We'll see you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreu, Marie LeConte and Tom Peck. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and Maracas by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>